In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway. And today we're going to continue our conversation about great investors, past and present, that can teach us a lot today. That's right. So last week we talked about uh, activist investors, value investors, and the innovative investors. And today we want to kind of round up the list and then conclude it by talking about how you can figure out which is your best style for your personality and your goals and to figure out all this information, which one do I use to invest myself? But uh, before we get to that, I just want to say thank you to everyone that's listening. Uh, by the time you hear this, we'll be at over 30,000 downloads, which is far beyond what we ever expected is not even a year yet so thank you for all that and if you want to keep supporting well keep listening and leave a rating or review for us preferably a favorable one preferably yes but let's kick it off by uh going a little contrarian contrarian investing is something that has taken a lot of note and it's really probably the most difficult investing style in practice to pull off because essentially the crux of it is when the world is literally falling apart and the worst is at its worst, you're buying. I disagree with you. That's the whole point. You see the world going one way, everyone's running to the right, so you then you run to the left. Everyone runs to the left, you run to the right. And you try and find the advantages or even just the things that could be at a bargain discount when it doesn't need to be. Well, and it completely contradicts human nature. We see in the markets on a daily basis, huge change in volume based on fear, based on news, based on sentiment. And that moves the market in a massive way. It's something we've talked about before. But uh, contrarian investing is basically everyone around you is saying, we think something terrible is going to happen. And you're kind of sitting alone in a room saying, no one's agreeing with me, but I'm going to take a bet. So let's talk about someone who's made those bets successfully in the past. Yeah, so let's go back in time a little bit and let's talk about uh, John Templeton. So he's kind of one of the best ideas of what a contrarian investor is. So 
his big scheme was, so during the Great Depression, he went out and he bought 100 shares of every company trading below $1. So this is at a time where stocks are falling, people are panicking, there's war going on, it's just madness. But he decides that I'm going to go buy 100 different companies that are under this $1 threshold and see what happens. Well, yeah. And who knows how much analysis beyond that went into it at this point in time. Like we said, the Great Depression... Obviously, people are not feeling very favorable about any kind of stocks. Stocks would have lost huge value already at that point in time. And people were worried about their investments going down to zero. So this was a very big and very real risk in that period at that time. Yeah. So in all, he spent uh, $10,400, which doesn't sound like a lot today. But so then during the years of those 100 companies, 34 of them went bankrupt. So... He failed. It was a complete and total loss. End of story, right? Well, that's what a lot of people expected to happen. But at the end of the day, when he sold off everything, he turned his 10000 into $40,000, even though a third of the stocks he bought went bankrupt. And doesn't that sound similar to a mutual fund, where essentially you're taking a number of different stocks, different positions, some will do well, some will not, some will have large gains, some will have losses, but if the net is positive, at the end of the day, he can feel pretty good that he's gone above and beyond and done his job. And that style, I mean, Templeton Investments is still a name that's recognized today. Of course, it's with Franklin now, but it is still a staple for people in mutual fund market, especially on the international side. Well, exactly. So he kind of took what he learned, he applied it to the mutual fund, created the Templeton Growth Fund, and then for 38 years, it's been averaging annualized return of 15%, kind of just going off the same idea taking advantage of this big pool of stocks. A lot of them are ones where people are thinking this may not do good. People are running away from, or even just the overall market sentiment and they're loading up. Yeah. So there's some that'll do good. There's some that'll fail. And then when you meet in the middle, that is where your profit is going to be. And this is something that can kind of get some people uncomfortable because they don't want to lose anything. Every single stock has to grow at the same rate or higher compared to everything else. And there's that fear that I can't have one or two things fail, but really the goal is to have enough things going well so that if one or two things fail, you're balanced out in the end because you can't expect everything to do great forever all the time. There's going to be these ebbs and flows, this pushback and pull. And one day this sector do great and you make money. And the next day this sector does great, you make money. And then the third sector tanks all of a sudden where it was doing great before, but you've got that security from everything else that it's doing well at that time. And again, that's pretty well exactly what a mutual fund is designed to do these days, right? It is offsetting your bets to a certain extent. Now, that's absolutely not to say that mutual funds are contrarian type investing, um, but it is the idea that what he had done during his career at that pivotal point in time is something that is modeled today. Well, yeah. And so part of that was also being the bargain hunter, looking for things that were undervalued or even just undernoticed. Like he was known for just searching the world for companies that no one was really talking about because it's kind of that staple that people gravitate towards the companies that are making the most noise. Like you go on Seeking Alpha, it's essentially the same 10 companies over and over and over again, and there's no guarantee they'll always do well. So someone like him would go around and find these smaller companies that no one was talking about 
So they were undervalued because people weren't thinking about it. They weren't trading. The volumes were low, but it was still a good solid company. And you just load up on these types of stocks and just watch the appreciation come because they're still good companies, just not the popular ones. And this is where a lot of growth could happen because a lot of these big, super popular companies, they can only grow so far because if they have a single bad day, the volume spike and the prices come down and then you got that whole day trader game going on, or this is more like the fund approach where you're trying to find good valued stocks that are going to continue to grow over time until you get to the point where you're happy, sell it and go do it all over again. Oh, sure. And that's almost a separate conversation in its entirety where, yes, you do have a segment of the market that are just looking for volume-based transactions, day traders, things like that. Nothing wrong with it, just a totally different type of investing as well. And then you have people that are looking at these types of things for whatever their goals may be, right? So let's move on again to growth investors. Talk to me a little bit about uh, Thomas Rowe Price Jr. Sure. So he's kind of seen as the quote unquote father of growth investing, which doesn't mean he was a farmer and liked to plant things. It was talking about really viewing the financial markets as something that were cyclical. They go up, they go down and learning how to time it right can be a real benefit to your portfolio. So this really we're talking about selling right before a crash and buying right before a spike. It's understanding how to understand the way the market is moving to try and predict the bigger events before they happen, at least trying to figure out when you're going to buy, when you're going to sell, when you're going to hold. So you're not, so to speak, following the crowd outside the building after someone set off the fire alarm. You're trying to figure out how to get in and out before that happens. Yeah, and there's a little hint of contrarian in this particular one as well. And it kind of goes to show how one style is not necessarily a be-all in all of itself. There are usually blends that kind of bleed through across these lines. So as these people are coming up with their own personal philosophies, you kind of take a little here, you take a little there, you put it together, you come up with your own version, but you can see that through there. Yeah, and with Rope Price, it was also it's one thing to identify these ups and downs. It's also having the diligence to hold on to it. If you see you have a something that's good, you got something that's stable, you really like this company, it's having the diligence to stick with it when these roller coaster rides are happening. Because that's how it comes down to a lot of it. It's understanding the markets will go up, the markets will go down. And if there's something you feel is still doing really well and has a good long-term potential, it's understanding to just hold on to it and benefit instead of being overly reactionary when everyone else is trying to tell you to run when they don't know why they're running in the first place. Well, and if you're going to be talking about the importance of cyclical markets, I'll jump in there with a little bit about Ray Dalio. So he has Bridgewater Associates, that's his kind of global macro hedge fund firm. And he is, I just finished reading his book, uh, it was part of my, my 3 a.m., 5 a.m., 4 a.m. reading club, uh, not because I'm part of the uh, get up and be super productive <laughs> type people in that movement. No, no, it's part of the we have a young baby, so we're up and we're reading. So Principles of Dealing with the Changing World Order is the book that I just finished by him. And it's all about how he sees the global macro as continuous big cycles that move across countries, across prior through history, empires and tribes and different dynasties, even where you have these big cycles that 
repeat time and time again, because really human nature is the same time and time again. And it's, it's almost funny. That's maybe the wrong word, but it's very interesting to see how we as a race repeat the same trends and don't see our predecessors having done the same thing. We think we're making these incredibly unique decisions on our own at this point in time, when really, if you look at how the cycle is run, and he talks about a few different cycles that are run simultaneously, one of them has to do with debt and stimulus and the way central banks, well, what we now call central banks, manage economies. But it's really enlightening because you see people take on these debts. You see the cycles move from beginning where there's tons of growth to mid where it starts to kind of slow down to late where you're kind of teetering in on the edge. So in his view, understanding where you are in a cycle and understanding where a country is in a cycle is very, very important. And I mean, I'll speak to this as well. A lot of the gains that you see, because things are typically measured against a country's index, it's very, very important to get the geography of where you're investing correct. Because if you don't do that correctly, you can lose out kind of on a broad-based sense of a big trend kicking in or a big change kicking in or essentially when a country does well and starts to take off or if it's in decline, you have to be able to see that to make the decisions about where your dollars should go. We talked about where to put this in. We kind of, I kind of settled on the growth area because the big part of growth is understanding the long-term movements and cycles of countries and markets and everything else. And we can kind of look at it as day traders care about the day-to-day to week-to-week. The hedge funds will look at the quarters to the year. The, the mutual funds and seg funds will look at the one year to five year. But really to get a, a firm understanding, you really have to be looking at like the 50-year, 100-year cycles to see exactly where we are. It, it kind of comes down to there are only so many fundamental problems the human race will face at any given time. And how each generation, how each hundred or so years deals with these problems determines the next course of history. It's essentially using the past to predict the future because there's only so many fundamental problems and there's only so many fundamental solutions to each of those problems. And it's figuring out where we are in the problem solution cycle and understanding where it is with your type of nation, government, company, how they will use the previous solutions to apply to today's problem. And this is where a lot of the value stuff comes in. It's looking back over the cycles over the last few hundred years, see how this debt problem, this economic problem, this governance problem, this political problem, how was it solved and how will we again use these same things to solve things in the future, whether or not we realize we're doing it all over again. Yeah. And one of the things that I really liked just reading a bit about his philosophy, and I guess it wasn't a bit, that book is over 800 pages. So if you want to delve in, it might take a while. Lots of 5 a.m. readings. But what I think he did really well, he has a story in the book about the first big mistake he really made, where he had essentially placed a huge bet with his money and his client's money on the markets going down for whatever the reason was. And he was wrong. And not only to be able to admit that, but also to go back and change your philosophy to now saying, I know what I know. I know what I don't know. And his philosophy has been to consult with 
experts in these different areas. So maybe he needs to talk to someone about a political issue. Maybe he needs to talk to someone about an agricultural issue or an international issue or whatever it might be to make sure that you're always testing your ideas with someone smarter than you, I think is very good. And the other thing that he said that I thought was very interesting, and keep in mind that this is a hedge fund, so different type of philosophy than maybe more traditionally available products to people like you and I, but he has now taken the position that he'll always put in a contingency in place for what if he's wrong? Because you can have the best research, the sharpest computers, the best build the best machine out there, and there will still be an X factor that you can't know or can't understand how someone will react or how a company will maybe change course or a country will change course. So his view of always taking a position that would either offset or diversify to the point where that risk is minimized. And I think maybe that's the lesson that's greater for us today, that essentially it's it's the classic not having your eggs in one basket. Yeah, Dalio is a big proponent of diversification, even going as far as say you should have like 15 or so uncorrelated assets to kind of drop down your risk. And then even his own core assets kind of has between his beta and his alphas. His beta investments are those who are doing good returns through passive management with normal amounts of market risk. And then the alpha investments are the ones that are more actively managed and are trying to outperform the general market. And it's having a blend of these two, which kind of brings down the risk profile. So yeah, you won't have a total crash and a total collapse if one sector, but again, it's also weighing this against where we are right now. Like you can argue that the recession and stuff that's starting to hit up right now is really the result of 2008. And you can kind of go back over the decades and see we are just endlessly in a cycle of action and consequence. And right now we are in a consequence of 2008, which is a consequence of something else, which is a consequence of something else. All this at times can bring about a predictable pattern. And it's understanding where you are in that pattern and learning how to use like the growth style that we are in this weak place here, but if things go the way that they went previously, we can have a benefit come out and I should hold this stock or I should sell the stock or I should double down on what I have already. We did a whole podcast a few a couple months ago about how the markets recovered after various crashes. And this kind of ties into the same thing. It's again, it's trying to predict the future by understanding the past, understanding human behavior and understanding how we have already solved problems previously. Because like I said, there are only so many fundamental ways to solve a problem. Even politically, you have like the authoritarian approach, the socialist approach, the conservative approach, the liberal approach, the anarchy approach, and so on. And it depending which of those ones are in power, which of those ones have the support, that is the answer that will slot in. And it's really the same across the board with politics and economics. It's understanding the possibilities of how people have tried to solve things in the past and determining which one of those ones will become the dominant solution in this situation. Well, and just to circle back to a little bit about what you said, it is so incredibly difficult to find asset classes these days that don't necessarily correlate. So if you're invested in stocks and stocks and stocks, uh, you're not diversified. So that's something to be aware of as well, how the different elements in your portfolio are working together or working against each other. Yeah, so we'll just kind of pick on Dahlia one more time. His so-called all-weather portfolio is like 30% stock, uh, 40% long-term U.S. bonds, 15% 
intermediate U.S. bonds, 7.5% gold, 7.5% raw materials. This is just like an example of you don't always have to go 100% stock. And they get the, if, you're do, if you're dealing with funds, this is different. But if you're dealing with a full stock or if you have a blend of stock and funds, it's seen that you need to have a bit of all these things in there at the same time to kind of really hedge your bets and keep you balanced out. Before we close out the, the growth investor, we should probably touch on Philip Fisher pretty quick. Uh, so he is kind of seen as one of the fathers of growth investing. He started uh, Fisher and Company back in the 30s, ran until 1999. And one of the things he's known for is his 15-point list of characteristics for common stocks. And he kind of breaks up those 15 into two sides. So you got the management characteristics and the characteristics of the business. And it's just figuring out how to understand these different qualities figure out like how this company is managed, how is it going to position itself? How is it going to grow? And you use that to determine whether or not it is worth investing in for the long term or just the short term. I bring this up because this comes down to your research. It's figuring out who you think is going to be a strong, stable, growing contender for the long term. And when you see these companies, it's having the tenacity to hold on to them when things are going well. And, but at the same time, if things start to go poorly, management ha makes bad decisions, they bring in people who aren't helping it, then yeah, it's a good time to sell and find somebody else. But it's just finding these well-run companies that aren't just the top 10 on Seeking Alpha and just holding on and realizing that there's going to be some good long-term growth. Again, we mentioned the, the beta podcast before, in the last episode, but these are these kind of companies that they are steady, they are boring at times, they are good growth, and they can bring about a good long-term return if you want to go this long-haul growth strategy. Well, and this kind of reminds me of the podcast that we did recently where we were talking about the secret ingredient being uh, capital appreciation. So filters like these, like the ones, the 15-point list with uh, Philip Fisher, these are things that are looking at what has the potential, what has the momentum, what has the ability to really take that stock to the next level as a company on the company level, rather than just trying to make your money on price changes or price appreciation. So let's move now to adaptive investors. Talk to me a little bit about Peter Lynch. Yeah, so Peter Lynch, he's best known for managing the Fidelity Magellan Fund for the past 13 years or so. And during that time, they managed to grow the fund from $20 million to over $14 billion. So they must be doing something right some of the time. Well, when you can consistently beat the index, that, uh, that will bring a lot of money to the yard. So Yeah. Well, yeah, just from my research. So of the past... So of those 13 years and he was in charge, they beat the index for 11 of those years and had an average annual return of 29%, which is doing pretty well. So it looks like they justified their fees on that one. So his philosophy, as I understand it, is he actually physically went to the companies to see if there were small changes that they would be making that maybe the market hadn't picked up on. Now, you have to be careful with stuff like this. It's very highly regulated at this point in time. But essentially what he would do is he'd buy a bit of the stock. And if the story was getting better and better and better, he'd buy more. And he could get to the point where he was owning huge positions in these stock. And that's really what led to his fund growing into one of the largest managed mutual funds at that time. Yeah, we understand that not everyone can go knock on the door of the CEO, but this comes down to the research side. That's just why we want to flag this. And the big thing with Lynch was he was kind of seen as a chameleon. We we call this the adaptive investors because they weren't afraid to move out of their one investment style. 
and that's something that is probably more important now than ever. It's being able to utilize different styles for different strategies in order to benefit your overall investment portfolio. So at some points in time, this strategy will work better than the other. And it's being able to be comfortable with really just switching up how you do things. And of course, this isn't sort of like a willy nilly, I'm just going to do whatever it is, the hot new fashionable investment style today. It's something that is built upon a lot of fundamentals. Like with Lynch, he had his eight fundamentals for his own selection process, which is things like uh, know what you know. So don't pretend to be an expert in something you're not, which is something which can be a big trapping for people who are really new to investing, whether it's stocks and funds. Another key was realizing it's futile to try and predict the economy and interest rates. Things can move suddenly without warning, and you can't be too dependent on that predictability at times. You need to have uh, plenty of time to identify and recognize exceptional companies, which again, this comes down to research and doing as much reading and studying and talking with people who know what they're talking about so you can understand how these things are working. So there are hundreds, if not thousands of people on the internet who will just talk about this hot new thing. It's finding people who will actually give you the fundamental breakdowns and how to read and understand. This isn't just the clickbait stuff. Well, and I think that's why Lynch was focused on good management as well. He's wanting to buy businesses that are going to be run properly. Businesses are run by people. So people's track records and ability to adapt are so important through stuff like this. Well, exactly. And that's combined with his philosophy of avoiding long shots. So just minimizing unnecessary risk for things that are flashy and cool and fun, but may not actually pay out at the end. And that comes with another one of his philosophies, which is being flexible and humble and willing to learn from your mistakes. You know what? The best investors out there are the ones that can acknowledge that things are out of our control and they do not always go to plan. Like I said earlier, you can have the absolute best research out there and still be surprised. It happens to absolutely everyone who's been in this game for a while. And if you can learn, if you can admit your mistakes, if you can figure out how to do it better and a little sharper the next time, and if you can consult with people that are smarter than you, then that I think alone can give you a bit of an edge as opposed to someone who says, oh, I know everything. I know exactly how this is going to play out and exactly what's going to happen. Well, that person could be in for a rude awakening down the road when things don't. And it's for, far more likely that we'll be surprised at some point in time uh, than it is that we're going to be consistently right forever. And like I said, I think everyone out there, all these professional money managers, they would all have their, oh, I regret that one. Oh, I missed the boat on that one. Oh, I saw this, but I didn't act because I wasn't sure. You know, all of that stuff. Yeah. And before we transition out from here, uh, I want to cover the last two points of Lynch. Uh, one of them is the big one is really before you make a purchase, be able to explain why you are buying. So this isn't just doing what the angry man at BNN told you. It is being confident in your decision and knowing exactly why you're going to take this action. For some people, it could be how they manage their stock portfolio. Some people, it could just be, I'm going to pick this I don't know, Canadian equity fund with my financial planner because I feel this didn't do the best for my future. It's being confident to know why you are doing this action and how it turns out you can never predict, but it's just being confident in the moment that you feel that this is a good reason to do this because of X, Y, Z. And that gets 
summed up with the last point, which is there's always something to worry about. So understanding there is the risk, there is reward. I think I'm going to do this action. But at the same time, there's always this small percentage that everything can go wrong. So at least go into this knowing that you had a good reason to take that action and it wasn't just a random impulse. Yes, and getting your stock tips from angry anchors or people who are just paid to have an opinion and not necessarily that are vested to the overall outcome or vested to how it does down the road is something that can be a bit risky. I mean, I mean, we all have our favorite shows for entertainment purposes. I mean, you can even say this show is for entertainment purposes. But at the end of the day, it's no substitute for having someone making a decision, even if it's yourself, that has a legitimate concern with how it turns out in the end, as opposed to this stock is hot right now, buy, 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 this stock is bad, sell, sell, sell. And they can say that and be gone the next day with no consequences. So I'm always a little bit wary of, like you said, the angry men on TV or women on TV that, like you said, have huge opinions, but don't necessarily care about the follow through or aren't vested in the follow through. So let's circle back to you and what type of investor you are and how specifically to determine your investment style. And like we've said through this, there isn't a one size fits all with investing. It's really just kind of coming to some key metrics and figuring out what works best for yourself at that particular point in time. So things I would give consideration to would be things like time horizon. Um, for the investment that you're looking to make? Is it short-term in nature? Is it something that you absolutely need this money? Uh, is it long-term in nature? That right there will lead to different styles. Yeah, and you can't be locked into one style across everything. Like we got some clients where we have one strategy for their RESP, have one strategy for their TFSA and another strategy for their RRSP. And you can't apply the same strategy across all three because it won't help the the people achieve what they want. That's a very good thing. When you tie money to a purpose, to a goal, that can really help you understand time horizon. So the second part would be how much risk are you comfortable with? And again, if you're looking to tying money to a purpose, this is a great way to do it. If it's money for a down payment that you need to be there in the next couple months, then no, you're not going to dump it into something fairly risky, or you're not going to dump it into something that might be more volatile. Like last session, we talked about our activist investors. You might not want to be risking your hard saved money to buy a home one day on potential changes to a stock where you don't know how it's going to pan out down the road or what management will actually do despite the story underneath. So there are situations where less risk can be better. So an example of that could be a value strategy where there's a lot less risk in an undervalued stock or a stock that's on sale hitting its target value price than there is in something like we said, like a merger or acquisition or someone swooping in there with all these new changes to this company and their strategy within the corp, which can change culture, it can change growth prospects, it can change so much. And at the same time, different people will just have different aversions or want to embrace the risk of how everything is playing out. Some people could look at the way things are today and say, wow, it's really crappy right now, but I think it's going to get a lot better down the road. So you may be more comfortable taking a lot more risk up front because you have that hope for a brighter future, or you could have the other way around. You could be very, very pessimistic and look at the world and say, it is terrible now. It's going to get worse tomorrow. I just want to hold on to what I have, but I still want a little bit of growth to happen. 
So a lot of this comes down to your personality. It comes down to your outlook on the world and the markets and what you are comfortable happening with to your money. Well, that's it. And like we keep saying, there's no one way to do this successfully, right? So most investors that we were looking at and studying as we'd gone through this exercise, they found their own groove. They found their own way. They found their own preferences. They focused on what they knew and they stuck with it. And really finding that pattern that you're comfortable with, whether it's a metric, whether it's a story, whether it's an understanding of a market cycle, or even just some people will find a favorite company and know absolutely everything that there is to know about that company. Read all the management reports and successfully just, you know, move in and out of one or two companies and that's their their whole history as an investor. And there's nothing wrong with that either. It's figuring out what works for you, what the comfort level is. And again, circling that back to what your purpose is for your money and how much time you have to do that. So if you feel the need to blend these different styles, and I mean, we've really only kind of scratched the surface, but you could talk about this stuff for hours. So just understand that when you're blending different styles, Depending where we are in the market cycle, that could be an important thing because certain styles do work better at different points than others. So for us, I mean, we have our preferences, of course, as well. But part of doing this for different people with different needs is you have to be adaptive in a certain sense to be able to match people and their styles with the investments that you're choosing for them as well. So that's something that we try and do over at Braun. If you're in the BC area and are looking to speak to someone, feel free to hit us up at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com. And we're always interested in having these conversations with you about market cycles, the way things are going, and really what you're trying to get your money to do for you long term or short term. You know, sometimes that's that happens too. So until next time, I think we'll call it a day there. Take care and all the best. In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.